All right, it is the week of September 17th, 2023, and this is the Fight Business Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Auger, and today it's all about TKO, the new company created by the merger of the UFC and WWE, which took place this past Tuesday, September 12th. We have a lot to unpack here. Several filings we'll need to look at, an S1 filing with some great financial information on the current state of the UFC and WWE, um, some management analysis and discussion in there as well that will give us an idea to the strategic vision of the company moving forward. Um, We'll talk about how it affects Endeavor, why Endeavor went ahead and spun off the UFC when it was their crown jewel. Just tons to unpack here. Um, That's what most of the episode is going to be about. Just talking about the behind the scenes stuff, what you can expect moving forward, any changes you can expect. I know there's talks about layoffs. We'll, We'll dive into that. Just lots to unpack. That'll be most of the episode. On top of that, however, we are going to talk about John McDessie's uh, grievances, one could say, regarding his pay from UFC 293 in Australia. He did post a payment remittance that kind of gives a breakdown of what fighters get paid. We're going to go through that a little bit because there's some information floating out there I don't think is quite accurate. And there is some other information that it's important we call out and we can learn from a fighter revealing his pay like this. And then last but not least, we are going to briefly talk about the business side of Israel Adesanya losing in pretty dominant fashion to Sean Strickland at UFC 293. Lots of business ramifications. You can already see it in certain areas of the sport. Uh, I will dive into that more in depth when we get to it. But yes, you can tell that this was not a good night for the UFC from a business perspective. And they are now trying to spin the narrative in a different way. So with that in mind, uh, timestamps at the bottom as always, and let's go ahead and dive right in. All right, so on to the meat and potatoes, as we say, of this episode, which is the creation of the new entity, which is trading live on the uh, New York Stock Exchange. And they did a whole bell ringing ceremony. They had the UFC and WWE belts, large replica version belts out front. Uh, and then had Ari Emanuel, uh, Dana White, Vince McMahon, Paul Levesque, a.k.a. Triple H, um, everybody there uh, to ring the opening bell on Tuesday during the mer- merger. Um, even had DC in the background there. Uh, but um, this new company is is official. And I did talk about this a little bit on the Pollock and Thurston uh, podcast this past week. Can't recommend that podcast enough, especially if you want to know the WWE business side of things, those guys are always on top of it. But that discussion was fantastic from, I joined about halfway through, but there's start to finish. I recommend listening to the whole thing. Um, Brandon Thurston and, you know, John Pollock were definitely on top of it. Uh, Some of the best discussion I've had about business stuff. So definitely think you should check that out. Um, We covered a lot of that at a surface level on that podcast um, and, and went more into certain specific questions here. I'm going to try and break down. We really see in terms of the um, financials on the UFC side of things. I will talk about WWE a little bit, but mostly it's going to be focused on UFC financials and new information on that side. Cause this is an MMA podcast. So um, from the S one statement, that has been filed. Uh, we have the financials for the UFC from 
this year up until June 30th. So it doesn't include the past couple months, but you know, first half of the year. And from that, we can see that revenue, again, going strong, um, for the most part in line with what we've seen in previous years filings. A big thing to note, however, is that this year their net income is reduced by quite a bit due to interest increases. So their EBITDA is actually up compared to the past six months of 2022. But when you look at net income and you see the interest expense, I mean, we're talking a substantial amount of interest that has not been on their sheets before. And that goes back to that 40% variable interest on their debt that the UFC has, right? Um, from a macroeconomic standpoint, the Federal Reserve in the U.S. has continued to raise interest rates. They have hinted at raising rates again in November, given that inflation is still ticking up a little bit higher than they like to see. Um, we're in a really weird position with inflation and unemployment because it has not tended to follow a normal pattern. But given the pandemic and the quantitative easing that the Fed did during the pandemic, um, there's still there's still a lot of hopefulness for a soft landing, which means something that would be a very mild recession or almost no recession. Um, but we're kind of in a slightly uncharted territories or territory rather uh, with this whole ordeal from a macro perspective. The bottom line, though, is that interest rates are higher than they've been in quite some time. Right. If you're looking to buy a house right now or take any sort of, of you know, refinance of your mortgage, it's it's a rough, rough time to do that. Um, I think they're up to around seven percent for housing uh, interest rates, which, you know, e even last year, you know, at the beginning of the year, uh, that was closer to, you know, half that less than half that. Um, so it's certainly caused a ripple effect. Right. Because. Those interest rates, what the Fed, you know, sets doesn't just affect mortgages, obviously, it also affects the debt that companies borrow. And for a long time during the pandemic, companies were just taking on a ton of debt and borrowing it because there was basically no interest, right? It, it was essentially free money that yes, you have to pay back a little bit, but over a certain period of time, if you think about the time value of money equation, it made all the sense in the world to get as much as you possibly could max out your credit facilities when the interest rates were basically zero or, you know, one or 2% because you could just take out, you know, millions of dollars in some cases, hundreds of millions or billions of dollars in debt and have to pay almost no interest on it. That has changed. And obviously, you know, they didn't just let companies take debt out um, like you do for a mortgage where you have a fixed rate and all of that. Um, when Endeavor took out the money to buy the UFC and continue to take on debt for the UFC, 40%, almost half of their debt was through variable interest rates. So now that 2% is up to 7 and that makes a huge difference as we can see here. Year over year, it's their debt is 101.8%, I believe, um, compared to the past six months previous year. And it's affected their net income. You know, this is the first year, and it's trending to be the first year anyway, in a long time where the UFC's net income will be lower than the year before. 
And almost all of that comes down to its debt, its interest on its debt. So that's important to call out. Um, a couple other things of note in this um, is that, you know, despite that, and despite having net income drop a little bit, the UFC is still about double what WWE's net income is, right? Um, so, you know, this is in the thousands when you're looking at the sheet. So you'll see 169.016, but that's thousand um, in the thousands place dollars. So got to add several zeros to it. Um, and then you look at WWE's and it's about 88.679. So a little bit more than half, but still it's significantly less. And that's despite overall revenue for WWE being at 707.925 while UFC was 611.915. So about 90-ish, you know, more in revenue and yet their net income is less. And that's pretty much because their direct operating costs for WWE are far higher. This is important because a lot of people are going to look at either the top revenue numbers or um, look at EBITDA specifically. Because if you look at EBITDA, um, you know, UFC blows it out of the water, but interest for WWE is almost non-existent. Um, in, in terms of where things sit with this new company, UFC is still the main driver of profitability as of right now, right? It, they're both profitable, clearly. I mean, th those are not negative numbers. It's not, you know, that WWE is barely making any money, but UFC is still going to be the main net income driver, at least as it stands right now. And that's important because when we talk about things like the antitrust lawsuit or uh, factors that affect business and could disrupt one or the other company, if the UFC is disrupted, it's going to hurt far more than WWE right now because they're making about almost twice as much in net income. So yes, it's still a bad thing if you know AEW somehow becomes insanely massive overnight and you know WWE's ticket sales drop and blah blah blah. Of course, but like from an overall company standpoint now it's going to be less of an effect than if say injunctive relief releases contracts of UFC fighters and PFL does gain a bigger foothold in the, the MMA market. Just got to keep that in mind because we're going to talk about both of these companies probably moving forward quite a bit. I mean, we've, we've had some analogies and some discussion of pro wrestling on the show before, um, but it's going to obviously increase just because they are now formed into one company. Uh, but it's very important to know about your sensitivity, right? Like it, it's, I cannot stress enough from consulting and other things where a lot of people just assume things are equal when a merger happens or that certain areas are really what's causing issues. And you've got to look at what truly moves the needle. If for example, the UFC could find a way to get rid of that variable debt and pay that debt down. 
Now that's going to be a higher priority for them since interest is their biggest expense decreasing net income. WWE, on the other hand, has not that much interest on their income at all. So they don't necessarily want to pay down WWE's debt. If anything, right, they could technically add more. I mean, not right now because it's just a terrible time to, to add debt. But I mean, if, if you're going to focus on paying down debt right now, it's UFC's without question. And yes, you could get, you know, increase in fighter pay and, you know, wrestler increase in, in their pay and all that fun stuff. That's fine. And that would certainly raise, you know, their, their expenses. But right now the biggest lever of, okay, this is going to actually change things is interest on the UFC's debt, at least from UFC side of things. WWE, it's their operating costs. If they can lower their costs through some of these synergies on the back end, which we'll talk about with production and, and management, then that's going to make the biggest difference in their overall profitability. So two companies, very different levers for pulling and changing what drives profitability. That's the main point I wanted to make with that. Um, other things of note on the UFC side in these filings, um, the UFC is, you know, then TKO owns 7% of Howler Head, which is the, uh, you know, banana infused, I think it's whiskey or tea. I honestly haven't kept I the, the liquor that Dana White, you know, pedals that's banana type. <laughs> uh, they, they have up to date about uh, almost $1 million in equity losses. And over the past several years, if you look at the filings where they compare 2020 to 2021 to 2022, uh, Howlerhead has not been doing well. And, and it's caused equity losses for, of about a million dollars a year for the UFC. Um, don't know if that will change or, you know, exactly what that leads to, but that, that's, not a great sign on Howlerhead being successful in the market. It's not another proper 12, it seems, in that regard. Um, Endeavor has noted in some of these filings as well, when we get into the management analysis and discussion, that they could hypothetically compete with TKO, which is very interesting. There's a non-compete agreement, essentially, in, in TKO's governance agreement that states that five years from this date or six months after uh, Endeavor, you know, divests from TKO. So right now Endeavor owns 51% of the company. If they were to sell off their shares and divest in any regard, uh, be six months from that point, they cannot invest in another wrestling or MMA company nor negotiate contracts for wrestling or MMA talent. That second part is big. Investing in another wrestling or MMA company, right? At this point, again, there, there are so few actual competitors. It wouldn't make sense for, I mean, with, with both WWE and UFC being the brand leaders of their industries by such a long shot, it wouldn't make sense to divest and invest in another company, right? Like it, it, TK, Endeavor would never say, I'm going to sell all my shares in TKO and then I'm going to like pour a bunch of money into AEW and PFL. It, it just doesn't make sense. Um, things would have to change rapidly and at a pace that I think, I mean, I mean truly rapidly, like a pace I don't believe anyone 
could anticipate in order for that to even be a plausible financial and business decision on Endeavor side. I don't think it's happening. But the negotiating contracts for wrestling and MMA talent, however, that is interesting. Because especially with some of the bigger stars, right, um, in MMA and WWE, they're represented by WE or WME, um, IMG, right, William Morris Endeavor, talent agencies. Um, if, if you get a Rock or John Cena or, you know, uh, which I don't know if, if they're currently repped by Endeavor, but um, there's been multiple people in the past, right? That given the talent agencies are a huge part of Endeavor's business and, and representing talent negotiations for movies, things like that, that could end up being a bit of an issue if they were to divest. And let's say a particular wrestler or MMA uh, fighter became a crossover star, started getting into movies, into other ventures. Um, they wouldn't be able to, you know, represent them as a talent agency. That's, that's where that could actually affect Endeavor, right? If we're talking like another Conor McGregor, another Rock popping up, and then they've got a deal with Endeavor representing them, and then Endeavor's like, we've got to divest. I mean, that that would hurt them. I, I will say this. The non-compete is almost a non-starter just because, at least in my opinion, because... If things were truly at a point where Endeavor saw some, you know, financial or business opportunity where it was worth to completely get out of TKO, or if things just went so south with some of these lawsuits or other, you know, let's say wrestling just and, and MMA just died overnight in popularity, um, then I think losing out on representing a couple crossover stars would be the least of Endeavor's worries at that point. Uh, make no mistake, even though Endeavor is now divested, and we'll get to that here in a bit in terms of why they made this uh, you know, transaction. And sorry, I said divested. They're not divested. Why they are no longer full owners, right? And they spun off the company to do this. Um, make no mistake that they still require the revenue that TKO brings and owning 51% of TKO is necessary for them to keep Endeavor's profitability and revenue running, right? They were in debt up to their eyeballs and the UFC was basically their lifeblood. They've given away a little bit less than half of that lifeblood in exchange for a couple of other things we'll talk about here in a minute, but they still need it, right? It is not a, okay, we don't need this money anymore. We can get out of this at any time. Like, if they're truly divesting from TKO fully, something is very, very wrong. That's what I will say. Uh, or, or they've just got some otherworldly business opportunity that I cannot picture right now. I can't think of a scenario where they'd ever want to do that. Um, looking at some of the risks the company is facing, uh, you know, in their management analysis and discussion, they mention. Uh, specifically, they call out, you know, competitors. They mention Bellator, M1, PFL, uh, AEW, New Japan, right? All all competitors you would expect in both the UFC and WWE spaces. But 
the fact that Bellator is listed is very interesting given, you know, there's been all this talk about the PFL Bellator merger, which I know there's new rumors out there. Again, I am not going to address it any more than I already have. Uh, we'll see when we see what happens with PFL possibly buying Bellator, but uh, they call all of that out and, you know, also address the lawsuits, right? Uh, they've got five lawsuits that they're currently dealing with all in regards to violation of the Sherman antitrust act um, and acknowledge like this could lead to issues. They also talk about unionization. Um, you know, the type of efforts that Leslie Smith did with project spearhead uh, the MMA FA's efforts. Uh, they, they say that, you know, there have been efforts to unionize our athletes and that could cause increased costs. And if you, watched the Ari Emanuel, uh, Mark Shapiro interview on CNBC, you know, they kind of acknowledged because they were asked about PFL. Uh, and, you know, is that a threat? And, you know, sent the stock, the Endeavor stock and WWE stock down a bit. And they acknowledged, you know, it's possible that it could lead to higher fighter pay um, because there will be more options. And, you know, as we've seen in, other spaces specifically, right. As we've seen with WWE, with the creation of AEW, you know, that from everything I've heard that did increase and kind of raise the boats a little bit, um, for wrestler pay, because you had other options and you now have a, a competitor who can pay some of these people, um, to a point where, you know, it's, it's, you have some leverage if you are a sought after talent. So, Ari and Mark acknowledge that could happen with PFL and we've seen the PFL make some offers right to former vets. Uh, you had Anthony Pettis, Fabricio Verdum, Francis Ngannou being the biggest one, but they also acknowledge that like, we've got enough cash and, and profitability here that we believe we can still increase our margins if fighter costs rise, which is, a bold statement because that's essentially saying like, Hey, we're going to still increase our net income and our EBITDA. Uh, even if we have to pay more for fighter costs and it's possible, right? I mean, it's certainly possible to achieve that. Uh, but whether or not they could actually pull that off, I'm not a hundred percent sure. I think it'd be harder than they think to keep the margins growing. I think you could maintain your margins, right? You could still make more EBITDA and enough, um, where, it offsets each other depending on fighter pay increases because it's very unlikely fighter pay increases are going to jump, you know, from where they're at now, which is, I think the latest number is what, 13%. It's, they wanted to cap it at 20. I think he, I doubt that it's going to go above 20 anytime soon. I think it could jump from 13 back up to 20, depending on, um, you know, PFL stuff. But even then, it would have to be a strong, a strong market and a strong showing for PFL post Francis Ngannou and this investment, which we, you know, we will see what happens in regards to um, how the PFL does, right? Uh, so those are some risks that they called out specifically. Uh, they also talked about their media rights deal being crucial and that if they could not negotiate or renegotiate rights to satisfactory ends, that could greatly affect them. That's of course their biggest risk. If they go out and, you know, this year, next year, they cannot, uh, 
get the media deals they want moving forward. I think that will send investors um, running a little bit and will be the biggest issue for them growing their margins because in the filings, right? Like the UFC's revenue year over year from 2020, you know, 2021, 2022, uh, so much of that comes from about 70% on average, I think across the three years comes from, or close to 70% comes from their media rights and comes from the deals that they negotiate for both overseas rights, but then domestically obviously being their big one, right? Getting SmackDown and Raw and UFC events, big media rights deals is the only thing TKO is thinking about right now, I would imagine. I mean, yes, they're thinking about other things too, but that's, I mean, that's the elephant in the room of they have to increase those rights and end up with far bigger numbers than what they initially uh, dealt, right? I mean, I we've heard they want double, which uh, that's probably tough in this macro environment, but even if they can get one and a half times their original deal rights um, or, or significant increases, right? That That's what they need to do to make investors happy, to secure their future, to make sure they can continue to grow their margins. As I've stated before on this podcast, when it comes to invest investors, retail investors, and even you know institutional ones, so much of the stock market and everything is you're either growing or you're dying. Doesn't matter if you just maintain things and you are doing fine. Like investors want to see growth. They want to put money into your company, buy, you know, buy a share of your stock for X, see it go up, sell it for Y. Right? Make that profit. That's what they want. So they've got to nail those those media rights deals, and that's going to be their main focus. Um that's the biggest risk. All the others are still important, especially the antitrust lawsuit. Uh, but the competitive competitors, uh, yeah, sure, kind of. Um, again, I don't see it as a, a short-term threat at all. I think it's more of a long-term threat. But right now, not something they need to focus on. Uh, it's it's that media rights deal, securing that and making sure the antitrust lawsuit doesn't result in injunctive relief or anything of that nature. Um, but Another piece of this too is, you know, um, social media use is called out specifically in metrics that they're using. They have a whole line that just says like social media use is critical to our company moving forward, basically. And that goes back to those metrics I've talked about over and over, right? We've heard, we've heard Lawrence Epstein talk about the UFC's eight segment customer market. We've heard Dana White talk about how Jay, uh, Chase Hooper did a ridiculous amount of views uh, through social media stuff. And, you know, we've seen YouTube views be a, a big indicator of people being pushed and things of that nature. Social media is a huge part of things moving forward because it's by far their biggest customer engagement metric. Right. The, the more I, I see and hear things in regards to how the UFC has handled social media, it tells me that that's 
pretty much all they're using for customer engagement. I know they're also doing surveys, right? Like if you go to an event or you buy a pay-per-view, they'll ask you, would you like to see this? Of course, they're doing other outreach, but social media is the core. It's it's where they're taking a lot of their cues from strategy-wise. That's the impression I get based on how it's been discussed. When you put it in your management analysis and you have a one line that just says like social media is critical for us and nothing else that again tells me okay like they are that's a core tenant of customer engagement for them that's how they're seeing which fighters and wwe superstars are you know doing well that's how they are maybe making decisions on who to push or you know match up particularly well i which isn't you know rocket science right one could easily guess that but it's not just some other shady metrics or you know shadow shady shadow metrics uh in the background where okay we don't know about this this and this it's that's their customer engagement suite it's all about social media that's that's what i gather from that and just important to call that out because i i don't think people think about that enough they when we hear complaints about like, why is a heavyweight doing this? Or why is this fight being made? And I'm telling you, it's almost always about business. It's always about what they can do from a cost standpoint, what they think they will do from a revenue generation standpoint. And I am sure they are taking into consideration, oh, XYZ is, you know, blown up on TikTok. We're getting this many YouTube views or, you know, when we, you know, post a, you know, article about him, it gets this many clicks. I'm sure that's all being taken into account, right? It's, it's at least from the UFC side, because that's what they are is number crunching, you know, consultants, essentially. <laughs> um, so important to call that out. Uh, now, in terms of the back office synergies and the, you know, company merging if you have not heard already, there were WWE layoffs um, on Friday, so the 15th. That isn't shocking, right? Anytime there is a merger, there's almost always a round of cuts. Sometimes it's significant. Sometimes it's just a couple people. But, um, and I talked about this on the Pollock and Thurston uh, podcast. From the UFC side, Dana has always made a, a point to be like, you know, we kept everybody during the pandemic and we've got a tight knit team here and blah, blah, blah. And that's all true, but they already kind of did their calling when Endeavor bought them, right? There were plenty of people let go, um, plenty of changes from the merger or, and not merger acquisition of Endeavor by the U of, um, of the UFC back in 2016. Uh, is that to say the UFC administrative side won't, still have layoffs? No. I mean, there could easily be people let go and they're just going to be more quiet about it. Um, I don't know if we'll hear about that or not, but coming into this, uh, you know, UFC had around 490 employees listed in their filings and WWE was like 800 ish. And so it always made sense that WWE was probably going to face more cuts than the UFC just from a standpoint of there's more people and a lot of the crossover, right? Um, it, it's there, there's going to be more fat to trim, quote unquote, which is is a 
I want to make sure I'm not coming across as callous because obviously people losing their jobs uh, is never great and sucks. But this is corporate America and this is how it works, right? This is this is the Jack Welch school of thinking. If you don't know Jack Welch, uh, I can't recommend enough, you know, the Behind the Bastards episode on him, uh, the podcast. Um, I did one on Vince McMahon too. That was also fantastic. But, uh, you know, the corporate restructuring that we all face today uh, through reorganization, et cetera, is his gift, quote unquote, to us. So that being said, uh, yeah, th this was always going to happen. Um, I could easily see some people getting laid off from the UFC, especially if you have um, WWE personnel that are more tenured or more you know, have more skills that line up with where TKO wants to go because ultimately what a lot of this is going to end up in with this merger is you're not going to see, at least from the UF side, UFC side, I don't think you're going to see a big cull in fighters, right? Where all of a sudden like 100 people are let go. Um, could you see some releases? Sure. I mean, I think it's more so they will not offer big, contracts uh when people are up and they may cut people a little bit faster right if you're on two fight losing streak and they don't see a lot of you know social media engagement or other metrics from you and you know normally they might be willing to give you a third chance because maybe it was a couple close fights they might instead decide to say now nah, we're, we're done uh but i don't think it's going to be like a big wave of releases wwe i don't know on that um i've seen mixed reviews from reporters in terms of some say a big release wave is coming. Uh, others say, nah, it's it's mostly back office personnel. WWE is a little bit different too, right? Because wrestlers get paid even if they don't necessarily appear on the show. So you've got the, you know, getting paid to sit in catering is I believe the, the line where like you're just getting paid to be part of the company. So it's a little bit different in that regard. Um, but back office personnel, they're going to really, you know, look to make a lot of of cuts and um, mergers to ideally bring the back office of both WWE and UFC together into a smaller unit that's able to do everything, right? Um, Ari talked about this, where a lot of the savings they see are, you know, trying to bring a UFC event uh, and a WWE event to the same place over a weekend and get a bit of bonus in terms of, you know, tourism site fees. Because when you the UFC goes to a particular place, they negotiate with a city like, hey, we'll come bring our event here if you pay us and it will allow you to create this economic boom and we'll help you do X, Y, Z which is common with, you know, a lot of giant events, right? Super Bowl does that. Um, uh, what's it called? NCAA tournament duh, does that. Oh, lots of places uh, will pay to have a particular large event or um, even just a, a regular event come to a city so that they can get the economic boost from people going into town, going to the show, uh, staying in their hotels, buying their restaurants, food uh, from local restaurants, you know, putting money into the city, getting taxed on it, right? 
course. So um, by packaging UFC and WWE events at the same time, because there is not that much crossover between fans, right? I think it's about 5% is what the numbers that's been thrown around has been. Um, that allows them to get more fans in general, right? More people into the city and should be more enticing for, um, you know, cities to host events at the same time. But if you're going to do that as well, you know, ideally from a logistics standpoint and a production standpoint, that's great because you can have a production crew go and set up the octagon and, you know, do the live fight on Saturday. And then as they've already said, they're going to start moving WWE events over to Sunday. Um, you do the very next day you set up in the same arena or in an arena nearby. Um, you set up the WWE ring and all that other stuff. And you can use the same people for that. And you only have to pay one plane ticket and you only have to pay like those particular people for the weekend as a whole, instead of, Hey, we've got to fly out this crew here. And then at the same time, we're flying out this crew to this area, we're flying out crew to a completely different city. And so we need double the crew minimum because you have to have, you know, particular camera operators, et cetera, et cetera. You get to reuse people at a reduced cost this way. Makes sense. Uh, also makes sense from a graphic standpoint, promos, right? We've seen, WWE promos obviously have been around forever. Uh, we've seen UFC do some of that stuff. You can obviously have crossover there. Uh, posters and things, you know, digital uh, engagement stuff can can obviously move a lot of things around um, so that somebody's doing both UFC posters and WWE posters for particular live events instead of and, and pay-per-views instead of, you know, having two people do it. This is where they will end up saving a ton of money. It's not that different from when Endeavor bought the UFC outright, where they kind of lean, introduced more of a lean structure. Uh, the main difference there is, is that was Endeavor was saying, Hey, you don't need this many people to do this, or we can reduce salaries here. X, Y, Z with a merger. It's much more of a, okay, we have, two people doing this now we only need one so one's gonna go happens all the time um but that's where they're gonna make a lot of changes i don't think the actual products of ufc events or wwe events are going to change that much right um you probably over time will start to notice graphics and things of that nature uh cutaways or, or certain production techniques being implemented both places right i think it's it's going to be natural that both shows are going to start to look similar-ish where they'll still be very different, but you might be able to say like, oh, that looks like a WWE or UFC thing. You know, just little, little tweaks. Uh, but I mean, I don't know that you're going to have all this crossover stuff um, that people have speculated. Uh, the biggest crossover I see, again, is... You know, UFC 300 coming up now that the companies are merged into one would not be shocked to see Brock Lesnar fight at UFC 300. I think that's the easy slam dunk win if he's willing to do it. Um, uh, yeah, because you now no longer have WWE and UFC competing for his services. You have one big company who can say, hey, we're going to pay you this much to do this if you're up for it. Right. Um, so could easily see that. Um yeah, you could get a Ultimate Fighter 
that's WWE wrestlers wanting to do it. Sure. You could do some gimmicky things like that. And yes, you will probably see more UFC fighters show up in WWE as guests doing guest spots, right? Similar to what Mayweather did or uh, Tyson Fury stuff. You know, I don't think you're going to see a lot of Cain Velasquez is right. I think that's more of going to be more of a rarity where they're going to go over and then start like wrestling, wrestling full time. Uh, but yeah, you'll, you'll see some crossover. Sure. But for the most part, it's going to be two separate products. Uh, I know Ari and Mark said they want everybody to, uh, or Mark did Mark Spiro said, um, you know, they want every UFC fan to be a WWE fan and vice versa. But you know, Dana White's comments on that, I think are pretty spot on where like, that's, I mean, he said they were stupid. I don't know that it's stupid to want that, but expecting that to happen, I think is going to be very hard. It's been quite some time. You will probably get some fans that now that they'll be exposed to more and more of each, they'll do a little bit more crossover, but I doubt you're going to get any sort of, um, you know, significant crossover fans uh, at least anytime soon. Could they come up with a way to really entice fans to get into pro wrestling and vice versa? Sure, but I, I think I think it it's at least the next five years you got to expect that five percent crossover is is pretty much it. Maybe you can bump that up a couple percentage points, but nothing so much that you think okay, we've got to now pivot and start offering certain products or services uh, that really cater to that crossover fan right i mean you could you, who knows you may end up doing things where it's like hey uh it's gonna be royal rumble weekend with uh international or no, not international fight week um SummerSlam and international fight week same weekend and you can buy tickets for both together right like who knows maybe but um that's like a vip on location thing they could do it, but it, it's not going to be prevalent not going to be all of a sudden everywhere you go it's buy one, get one, or, you know, go to both these events. I, I don't foresee that at all. Um, I do think on location services will start managing WWE VIP experiences, right? What they're doing in the UFC right now, where, you know, you go to apex shows and you can at the pay-per-views, you know, you can meet and greet the fighters and have your special area and good seats, all that stuff. Like, I do think you'll start to see some of that in WWE. And again, it will be, look just like on location to offerings in UFC. Cause that just makes sense for them to do. It's low hanging fruit. Uh, but other than that, again, I, I think you're looking at two pretty distinct products still. Um, so, you know, one of the best things I've seen, uh, was from an MMA site. I think it was bloody elbow said like, you know, technically Vince McMahon could, uh, veto, you know, moves in the UFC. It's, that's not going to happen. I mean, when you when you talk about titles, right? Because Dana White's been promoted to CEO and Vic McMahon is now chairman of TKO. Like when you talk about shuffling titles around and reporting to things, once you get to a certain level from what I've seen in the C-suite, and it does depend on the company, I will add that caveat. But once you get to a particular level, right? Um, you are, yes, you, you technically have a boss and yes, you technically have to report to people, et cetera, but it becomes much more about much more discussionary and 
Is discussionary even a word? Sorry. Uh, just spitballing here. Much more um, through discussions and and mutual respect and, and partnership than, you know, your typical manager ordering an employee to do this or employee saying, I'm going to do this and manager saying yay or nay on, on that stuff. Um, big decisions always, but Ari has already made it pretty clear that, you know, Vince is going to run WWE and Dane is going to run UFC. And I think if Vince were to interfere at all with UFC, um, in a, a negative manner, right? Where Dana didn't ask for his help or, you know, some, if, if Vince tried to meddle in UFC at all, Ari will shut that down, right? Um, there's no way Vince is going to have veto power into certain aspects. Um, talent relations could be interesting, right? Uh, talent relations on both sides has been tumultuous with um, Hunter, Hunter Campbell and, and John Laurinaitis previously. Uh, and I forget who's in charge of talent relations now in WWE, but that could maybe, maybe there's crossover there, you know, with how they want to merge that. If some, maybe somebody's kind of head of both fighters and, and wrestlers or whatever, but like, you're not going to see Vince McMahon involved in UFC decisions. It's not going to happen. That's, that's, it's not clickbait, but it's tech. I mean, it's, uh, ignore, ignore anyone saying that Vince McMahon could veto certain things in the UFC. There's no way there, there's just no way that's going to happen. Um, so let's move on a little bit to why Endeavor did this and what Endeavor gets out of this. Right. Um, and well, actually first let me talk about the, the media rights as well. Uh, so, cause we talked about that being a huge part of TKO, and now that they are officially, you know, one company, WWE and UFC, you can negotiate media rights together. I think that's going to be the end goal. You can't do it this year because WWE's rights come up about a year before the UFC's, although you could easily hint at things, right, in negotiations. Um, you could easily kind of be like, well, we've got UFC rights coming up. And, you know, if you get us, that you, you buy SmackDown, Disney, then, you know, we could maybe work out a deal in the future or, but you can't do true negotiations due to legal restrictions. And, you know, not to say that there wouldn't be conversations that were off the record. And, you know, I've, I've just a little bit of insight into business ethics, right? Like again, with stuff like this, I guarantee someone, I don't know who, but I guarantee someone is probably having off the record conversations about what it looks like selling these two together. I cannot imagine that isn't happening. Um, but eventually, right, I think a big part of this, because the WWE Network is on a separate schedule, uh, I believe for 2026, so they could technically bundle that together with um, UFC, right? You could do whoever gets UFC's content also gets what's currently on WWE Network on Peacock and put it together. Um, but whether that's, fewer years or it's whatever TKO is almost certainly going to try and get to the point where media rights for both UFC and WWE come up at the same time, because then you can go out and sell it as a package deal and not necessarily that they have to sell it as a package, but it will help them leverage 
um, those rights far more and will enable them to, I think, get closer to what they want for media rights deals because as companies desperately streaming companies desperately try to become profitable and you know get the content that is really pulling in numbers and that advertisers want and are willing to pay a lot of money to show their ads on if you've got those two together which are you know huge outside of the big four sports in the US that gives you so much more leverage than if you have to do them one at a time. It just does, right? Because right now with WWE, they could say, well, it's going to be a down year. We can kind of do this. And there's not really, a, you know, um, there's not really a necess- necessarily a sense of urgency of, okay, we've got to get at least one of these, right? Because we could wait and see what things are like for next year for UFC and and so on and so forth. If you are able to package them together, it, it changes everything drastically. And you're able to sell it as a package as well as leverage each other, um, leverage each of them off of each other when talking to bidders as well. So I, I pretty much... I won't guarantee that, but I, I pretty much don't see a world in which TKO doesn't try to line up the length of the deals, the next, uh, you know, the next couple deals here to have them expire around the same time, or at least have a negotiating period that's open and legal so they can openly negotiate rights for both during the same period. Because then you can do a roadshow, you can do, you know, tons of stuff. So I think, I think that's coming for sure. Um, all right, so now moving on to what Endeavor gets out of this. When we're talking about why Endeavor did this, the biggest thing you've got to look at, again, is debt, right? Um, on the Pollock and Thurston uh, podcast, you know, I was asked about the reverse Morris trust, and Nick Khan did make a comment that essentially said, like, oh, we actually can't do a reverse Morris trust, blah, blah, blah. And I saw that, but I haven't seen any actual information to contradict that. So I don't know if that's him misspeaking or if they really can't, and there's some other things going on, but and we just don't know yet. But regardless, um, right, in a worst case scenario with the reverse Morris trust, you're only able to push out the debt of the company you spin off and you're not it's not a tax-free transaction which isn't you know great but it's not the end of the world especially when the main thing endeavor wanted to do and the biggest benefit they get is they get to put 2.7 billion dollars 2.8 billion dollars around then like between 2.7 2.8 billion dollars of debt into tko remember endeavor's debt was Five billion. That's so. That's over half of their debt is now off of their balance sheets on Endeavor. And we've talked about how it's these rising interest rates, and you know, UFC is their lifeblood. But you know, if something happens to the UFC, they're in trouble because of how much debt Endeavor was in. They were increasingly levered up, which means you know, has a ratio of um, far more debt than than earnings. And Mark Shapiro and and Ariel Manuel talked about this on the CNBC interview again. Mark specifically stating, you know, when they started this, they were eight times leverage, which is a pretty high ratio. It's not the best, right? That, that was part of when they had to get special permission from Moody's to take on the debt and, um, or not Moody's, the SEC. And, and things were kind of like scrutinized um, 
because they were, you know, so debt heavy, they are now under three times leverage. That's very big for them. And that's much more healthy for a company, right? That's something as an investor you like to see, because that means, all right, even if things aren't as bad as, you know, or I'm sorry, even as good as you want them to be revenue wise or particular, whatever wise, it's not like you have these looming interest payments and this looming amount of money that they have to pay back. They still do, but it's far less than was before. I mean, getting rid of over half your debt in a single transaction is always a good thing for a company generally, right? Um, so this allows them to transfer a lot of that debt and give them some breathing room. It also allows them to kind of diversify their money that they're they're getting in by having WWE be a part of this, right? We know with the antitrust lawsuit and some of the other threats the UFC faces, if something happens to the UFC, it's a real bad time. Before, if something happened to the UFC, it, it could literally sink Endeavor because that is all they had. Now, they are able to at least have this other entity, which it's not as much, right? I mean, UFC is more important to TKO than WWE from a financial standpoint, at least at the moment. But for net income, of course, not all financial aspects. But it allows them to kind of diversify themselves a little bit where if something happens to the UFC, well, that's not great, but they still have WWE's revenue to draw from with their 51% ownership. That's big. Getting rid of that much of your debt and diversifying your income streams, basically, right, is a smart call. Just from a strategic standpoint, it, it's as if everything goes well, great, because the UFC is going to continue to make these margins. Uh, WWE is going to continue to be profitable and it's currently on a hot streak. So you're getting probably a better deal than if you just had UFC alone right now. And you have far less risk. Uh, if it doesn't go great, if something happens with the antitrust lawsuit, injunctive relief, or you know they end up having to pay a bunch of money, which would be a whole other scenario, it hurts, but it doesn't necessarily kill Endeavor dead in the water. They at least have a small lifeline, right? This is about risk management. That's a huge part of this transaction. It still makes sense for them financially too, right? A cost-benefit ratio here Endeavor, I'm sure, looked at these numbers and said, oh, yeah, this is still going to be great. We're still going to be able to make more money. But it's a lot about risk management, in my opinion, um, especially with getting that debt off of their books and getting, you know, at least uh, a, th a third of their income from this 51% entity uh, now coming from a different source that's not subject to the current UFC antitrust litigation or the PFL investment or any of that stuff. WWE has its own risks and its own threats, of course, but diversification in that area is never a bad thing. Um, and, and this allows Endeavor to do that. Endeavor also can technically, again, compete with WWE and UFC. Um, despite the non-compete clause that they have, right? Uh, there's, they list out like, you know, Endeavor may compete with WWE and, you know, or TKO rather, uh, in certain areas and, you know, whether that's distribution or, or betting or what have you, they, they can do that. And they've called that out as been like, this could create conflicts of interest where, you know, that's, that's disclosed conflict of interest that made happen. I don't foresee that happening where they're not going to just, you know, spin up a, 
you know, in-house wrestling promotion or doing no, but it, it gives them options, right? It gives them outs and minimizes their risk. It's risk mitigation to a T. So that's what they get out of this is they should hypothetically still be making plenty of revenue from all this. But then at the same time, they now aren't, you know, beholden to all of the UFC's woes and problems and that being their only, you know, lifeblood. Uh, it allows them to create more of the ecosystem they want with less debt and to build out their other properties, which is really Ari's goal, right? The Ari's goal was never, we're going to buy the UFC and then become like basically UFC plus talent agency. No, Ari and, and Endeavor as a whole wants all these other things and selling this off in the way that they have is a smart call and a good strategic move, I think, especially from a risk management standpoint. So I feel like that's the biggest benefit Endeavor gets out of all of this and a big reason why they did this. Um, I think that's pretty much everything with uh, the TKO creation. I know, obviously, I've I've gone in depth in different areas, uh, went a couple of different ways. Let me know your thoughts on this. Are you excited about TKO? Uh, do you think it's a bad call? Do you think, uh, you know, are you going to be watching both WWE and UFC? Uh, are, are you going to, you know, go to a event if you once were a WWE fan and now you're go, like, going to try UFC event or vice versa? Let me know your thoughts on all this because obviously still a ton to unpack. Uh, I've gone through a lot of the, you know, financial information as much as I can. Again, check out uh, Brandon Thurston. John Nash, of course, is on top of it. I still have a lot more to go through. I, I did not spend, shocker, I did not spend, you know, uh, every waking moment <laughs> looking through these documents, but I've gone through what I think are the biggest, you know, points here. Uh, but let me know your thoughts because, you know, moving forward, this is this is the new entity. We've talked about Endeavor a lot, and we still will talk about Endeavor a little bit, but now it's going to be kind of TKO, and we're going to see financial filings of WWE and UFC moving forward. It's it's going to be it's going to be a thing, um, and yeah, we'll we'll see what happens with all this. But let me know your thoughts because there's there's a lot to unpack, and it's a big big shift and, and a big deal for both companies. All right, next up, we're going to briefly talk about uh, John McDessie's payment remittance and his grievances regarding uh, his UFC 293 pay, uh, especially because he lost, right? Very close decision. A lot of people thought he won. I thought he won. Thought it was kind of a little bit of a hometown judging situation. But uh, he did post a picture of his payment remittance. So this is what, you know, the UFC essentially sends him uh, to say like, Hey, we've sent your money. This is the financial information. Keep it for your tax records, et cetera. Uh, and with this, you know, that I think it's his 20th fight and he's making 58 K. Uh, and then when you look at the deductions of this, right, uh, there's no overweight penalty. There's no opponent overweight penalty that would have add to this money. Uh, there's medical expenses, which is broken down at the bottom. Uh, it talks about, uh, you know, his, labs blood labs his eye exam chest chest x-ray physical all that stuff um so that kind of gives you an idea of what labs cost and the fact that it comes out of their pay and then his airfare i know a lot of people were shocked like oh my gosh they didn't pay his airfare like they tend not to pay your airfare unfortunately uh 
not every time, right? Depends on the fighter, all these other things. But yeah, they clearly didn't pay his airfare for this. So that's deducted. Um, for other, it's his visa fee. So obviously has to get a visa to, you know, compete in Australia and he has to pay and, and set that all up. So that's deducted as well. So then you get the net uh, show purse before tax. And then you end up with the federal taxes uh, being 45%, which again, he will get some of that back. There are treaties and all that. Like you cannot look at that number and be like, holy crap. Like he, he lost 45% of his money and that's gone forever. No, it will be taken into account when he files his taxes as well. Um, that That's not how it works. So I know a lot of people were going around being like, wow, they took that much money. Never fight in Australia again. I mean, it's still, it's still not fun, right? Like you still, he is still going to have to pay a certain amount of tax because of that. And he won't get that money back until he files. So, you know, that's another, if he's filing in, let's say April, right. That's another seven, eight months. So that's not fun. Uh, but it's not like he lost that money forever, right? That, that goes towards his taxes in general. Um, but another thing to, to point out here is that, it says John McDissey, JWM Fight Inc., right? Which um, that's JWM is his initials, I believe, and then Fight Incorporate. So that's his company that I'm sure he set up in order to, you know, work with the UFC. This is a common thing uh, in my consulting business, right? I set up a, an LLC and I invoice through the company. It allows you for certain business expenses and, and write-offs in certain areas. It makes more sense from just a protect yourself standpoint than be a sole proprietor. So he set up a company here to say like, okay, like I'm going to go ahead and, uh, you know, uh, get paid through that company. I'm sure he then takes money from that company. If you're a single person LLC, which this might be, I don't know if that's the case or if it's a true partnership LLC. Um, there are different rules there, but uh, he's done that here, right? It's I would imagine most fighters do that. I don't think most fighters are just getting paid as sole proprietors in their names, and that's it. Uh, regardless of what the companies are called, like Initials Fight Incorporated or what have you, I would bet money majority of fighters have their own LLC slash thing set up. Um, and then it's, you know, just pretty much his final amount of pay, which is 28461 uh, in US dollars. So, I mean, big takeaways from this, I don't want to spend a ton of time on this, but big, big takeaways from this are, you know, this is what fighters are, are generally having to do when they get paid, right? They, they end up uh, having to have deductions come out. Uh, airfare, I think it depends on the particular... Um, fight and you know fighter but it also shows 20 fights and, and 58k this is a good insight into okay you can be a veteran in the sport for a long time where you're not ranked you're not you know one of those guys who's, who's still making um crazy money because you fought for a title and then you know or you you uh were a former champion and you're still around like these these are the veterans and, and the names we recognize of guys who've been around a long time, but have never really quite cracked the ranking slash championship run, but are still with the company. And I think a huge reason why is that amount of payment right there, right? If it, if the UFC can keep you around 
from a cost perspective, they want to. They don't want to let go of all these guys that are semi-recognizable names that then go on and win PFL or go to other, you know, go to Bellator, go, do fights elsewhere, right? They want to have Jim Miller's, uh, John McDessie's, uh, guys that have been around fighting forever who have a recognizable name that fans can get behind, but that they're not paying, you know, mid to high six-figure purses for. They, they would much prefer that. The main issue is, is that most fighters, right, are trying to negotiate increases um, using that formula that we've seen before in the antitrust lawsuit, but then, you know, outside of that even, right, once your new contract, once your contract is up and you're trying to get a new contract, you're almost always trying to go and get more money than the last time, of course. But that can lead you into a weird scenario uh, where Derek Brunson, for example, right, was just recently released from the UFC. A lot of people are shocked by that because Brunson was ranked all of that. But if you look at Brunson, he's one of those guys that made a run and got pretty high up in the rankings and then became like a top, top 10 gatekeeper. And I wouldn't be shocked if he had negotiated, you know, some higher fighter pay for a mid-card guy or a perennial contender guy. And then after losing and kind of, you know, winning and staying in this weird stasis of, okay, he's top 10, but he's not, or top 15, but he's not really, you know, top five or, or a title contender. He wants to keep fighting, but he's losing anytime, you know, we give him uh, a tr- the guy who's going to challenge for the belt next, and he's winning anytime we try and build up another guy we think might win the belt. I, that puts you in a more costly position because the UFC doesn't want to necessarily pay that out, right? MacDessie, on the other hand, yeah, I mean, you can put brand new prospects or other veterans with names against him and... If he's only 58K, sure, we'll we'll keep him around. He's a good test. We'll see where other people are. I mean, right? It's gatekeeping. So, I mean, that's all I have to say about this, but this this is a good insight, right? Good insight into what it looks like for fighters getting paid and that they've got licenses and airfare and medical, all that stuff taking out of the show purse. And this doesn't even include his manager and his training camp and all the other stuff he'll have to pay, Right. That's probably why he's pretty upset with the judges. So, yeah, not that shocking. All right, last thing I want to briefly talk about today is Israel Adesanya lost in pretty dominant fashion to Sean Strickland at UFC 293. And that obviously has some business ramifications uh, for the UFC moving forward, right? Uh, This was a huge upset, I think, when you talk about title upset, it's not the worst odds upset. I think that still goes to Shana Dobson and um, Maria Agapova that where it was like plus 800 or something Um, was not that from a odd standpoint, but in terms of like title fight upset, it's, it's certainly up there with Rousey home. Right. Um, I mean, this this is a major shocker. Uh, I believe Strickland went in at a plus 650, uh, plus 700 around there. And it wasn't just a, you know, flash knockout or, you know, an injury or something crazy. It was pretty much bell to bell domination, four to one round. Um, that's huge in a ton of ways because from a fan, fan perspective, right, it wasn't like Izzy got caught and now he should you know, get another shot. It wasn't like the Pajara loss where, you know, Izzy is winning that fight until the fifth round when, you know, 
Poton ends up getting the TKO. I, I mean, that's that's not the case. This was a, a dominant beatdown by Strickland against Adesanya. Um, and so with this, right, because this was obviously a fight made pretty short notice after uh, Driscus de Plussy. Yeah, I'm mispronouncing. I know. I'm sorry. Um, you know, couldn't fight after his injury against Robert Whitaker. Um, and that was the fight they wanted to do in Sydney. So you had Strickland come in and do this in order to keep the card intact, in order to keep Izzy on the card. And now this sends everything into chaos. You've got the merger happening, right? And it is with, there, there is no doubt. Well, it is without question that Adesanya is one of the biggest stars in the UFC right now. Um, and if you want to talk about consistent attractions, he's the most, he's the biggest, most consistent attraction for sure. He fights regularly. He draws big numbers. Uh, he's not McGregor, but outside of McGregor, he he's right up there. You could argue he's larger than John Jones, depending on John Jones's opponent. Because we know John Jones has had a couple of opponents in fights where he did not draw particularly well, right? Um, Anthony Smith, Tiago uh, Santos, I think, drew a little bit lower. I mean, Adesanya tends to still sell what we know not as much as, as Oliveira versus uh, H.E. from Sports Business Journal. But, I mean, I got to imagine he's still one of the bigger draws out there. Internationally, he definitely is which is a huge point, right? Domestically, that's one thing, but internationally, like he, he still is, is very big. So with all that in mind, right? Um, in terms of him losing now, we've seen two immediate things, which is one, Dana White said that the rematch should happen. Like you definitely do the rematch, which a lot of fighters and fans were kind of scratching their heads. Like, why would you do a rematch after a dominant, you know, pillar to post type defeat. And then you've got ESPN who has their own rankings, just like sure dog does and other people, whatever, uh, essentially say with, with Brett Okamoto, the journal uh, reporter for ESPN, I'm not going to call him a journalist, a uh, reporter for ESPN saying, you know, Adesanya had an off night and in our rankings, he's still number one and Strickland is only number five. Because, you know, one bad night doesn't define a, a fighter. Now, keep in mind that Adesanya is now one and two in his last three fights. And it, it's just the amount of, of, I'm happy to see the amount of pushback, right, on that narrative. But to look at this from a business view, right, clearly the UFC is doing everything they can to get Izzy back with a title and to put him and, and protect his credibility, right? Because as we know, in order to become a star in this sport, you have to have a personality that attracts people, which Izzy does, and then you have to consistently win. If you don't consistently win over time, your star power starts to fade. Doesn't mean you still can't draw a ton. Doesn't mean you still aren't, you know, people aren't going to tune into your fights, right? McGregor obviously has, has taken a hit in some ways after the Poirier losses, but like, I mean, he could, if he comes back, he's still making tons of money. He's still probably doing close to a million, if not over a million buys, right? Um, and, and 
you know, you could still, once you hit that type of level of star power, I mean, if you lose eight times in a row, okay. 